Welcome back to Propel, Allen and Overy's podcast addressing all things related to self-driving vehicles. I'm your host, Paul Keller, an IP litigation partner in the firm's New York office. I am joined today by Microsoft's Kurt Niebuhr. At Microsoft, Kurt leads the HPC AI workload incubation team within Azure Engineering. One of the team's primary responsibilities is defining and building out the cloud supercomputing infrastructure to scale the development and testing of the software and AI that powers the autonomy stack. Kurt and his team engage directly with OEMs, tier ones, tier twos, and startups, and supports an ecosystem of software and simulation partners to make Azure the most scalable, agile, and cost-performing platform that not only accelerates time to market, but helps ensure the accuracy, capability, and safety of the final product that is put on the road. Kurt, welcome to the program. Hi, Paul, happy to join. Well, it's great having you. And so let's set the stage a bit. Can you explain the role Microsoft and specifically Azure plays in the field of self-driving cars? Sure, first, we don't build a self-driving car. That's not our job. Um, our job is to help our customers and partners build their own self-driving cars by providing a platform that scales, is agile and cost performant. Um, it really goes back to, I think, a very important moment about four or five years ago, about a year into his role as CEO. You know, Satya Nadella announced that, you know, we are the company of digital transformation. In other words, it's our job to turn our partners and customers into AI and software companies. And autonomous driving is basically probably the best example of a traditional mechanical engineered product becoming then a more completely software an AI-driven product. Like I said, it's the best example of digital transformation out there. So facilitating that digital transformation via our cloud services on Azure is effectively what we're trying to do. And what you're explaining there is that you're relatively car agnostic, you're not trying to pick sides or anything of that nature. You can work with any and all up and down the supply chain. Am I catching that right? Well, yes, actually, when you think about it, it's Really, any intelligent edge device with a sensor, a controller, and an actuator, you know, that's powered by AI and software is the target. It's just that, you know, right now there's a lot of automotive opportunities in front of us, and we do engage across the value chain. We work with OEMs, uh, we work with startups, uh, but we also work a lot with tier ones because tier ones are really the SI integrators of the automotive world. It's where hardware meets software. So it's a very focal point of part of the value chain where we engage a lot. Well, you've certainly got a unique view on how the space is developing and how kind of the industry leaders are leading, um, and you play a role in that. So what do you see as some of the key challenges in the space? Is there a way to segment that uh, in terms of challenges? How do you see it? If you think about it, it's basically three separate work pipelines. It's your software development pipeline, you know, also called your CICD pipeline. It's your all of your, you know, data scientists developing all the AI, your, your ML pipelines, and then because every time you update a piece of software or an algorithm that you know runs in the perception stack, you have to validate you know that software or the AI is performing you know as designed. So that triggers like a validation or more specifically a simulation job. So you have these three major workflows that are all running in parallel. So the ability to you know integrate these three you know parallel workflows at a massive scale and shorten time to market is kind of the key capability that is required by our customers and partners. And that's what we're very much focused on delivering. Can you walk us through how you do that? How do you maintain those three parallel pipelines um, in a way sure. that 
meeting your well, clients' needs. First and foremost, we're lucky. <laughs> we have, you know, GitHub <laughs> uh, is part of Microsoft now. So it's the largest developer platform in the world. So we have that to draw on. Then we have something called Azure ML or AML for short, Azure Machine Learning. It is for, say, machine learning, you know, development pipelines to what GitHub is for development. It's a development environment or process uh, that does everything from model management to, you know, model pipeline management to model deployment, end-to-end uh, -end across, you know, the ML workflow. And it can, you know, bells and whistles like, you know, auto-scaling, you know, uh, hyper-parameter tuning, all the things that an AI developer needs uh, to develop and deploy his model. And then on top of that, the, we have the division where I work, where it kind of all then comes together in the simulation, is we have many thousands of GPUs or FPGAs or specialized CPUs that can scale uh, these validation workloads, basically supercomputing, you know, in the cloud. So it's via these three capabilities and the ability to integrate the workflows across these three parallel work streams that really helps us differentiate. So how does one accurately assess the real-world performance of the vehicle under test purposes? So customers are looking to do three things. First of all, they want what's called bit accuracy. Is the simulation a true digital twin or reflection of what's actually happening at the edge in the vehicle? Can we accurately recreate the real world via simulation? So that bit accuracy. The other thing they want, for lack of a better word, binary accuracy. They don't want to recompile or cross-compile. They want to run that software natively on the cloud. The third thing they want is cycle accuracy. They want it to run real-time or close to real-time as possible. And so across bit accuracy, binary accuracy, and cycle accuracy, they want a truly accurate simulation that, as best as you possibly can, running on VMs, recreates the real-world performance of the car at the edge. And is there an easy way of describing how you make sure at Azure that that's done accurately? Well, first and foremost, we try to build VMs that silicon perspective, it's as close as possible as the car. For example, if it is a NVIDIA GPU in the car, we need to run it on NVIDIA GPUs in the cloud. And not only does it just have to be the same NVIDIA GPU, it actually ideally should be the same, you know, generation of GPUs. For example, if it's a, like a, a drive Atlan in the car, you want an Ampere generation uh, GPU in the cloud. And that basically helps ensure the three things I just talked about. A, it runs natively. B, because it runs natively, you, there's no recross compile or recompile. And then finally, you know, if you have enough memory and, you know, power behind the GPU, then it runs in real time. I've heard this concept of re-simulation, sometimes used almost synonymously with recomputing. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Can you explain that concept and the role Azure plays? Re-simulation, there's, there's so many names for this workload. Some people call it re-simulation, some call it sensor reprocessing, other call it like recompute. Um, but basically, it is an open loop test. It's basically a replay of the entire test drive from the test fleet. Uh, and the reason why you do this is you want to figure out what software or what AI requires updates. Like did the car perform the way it was supposed to? For example, if a chicken crossed the road, did it recognize what was crossing the road was a chicken or something it, can, it didn't need to break for it or did it just need to keep going and not worry about hitting it? Did it see the world as it was supposed to see it? Did it also make the correct decision, right? So they do a replay of all the key scenes from the test drive and they score it. And that basically uh, gives them an idea of then what software or what parts of the perception stack or the AI that drives perception stack 
uh, needs to be updated. That's basically what resim is. Um, it is a tough job to run because a, you know, you have the accuracy requirements. You know, once again, what I talked about earlier is can you do an accurate recreation, you know, of the world on your VMs and can you know, score it accurately? The other problem is, is when you run this job, the car is not actually getting better. You're just simply finding out what, what went wrong. So it's not a value added job. So nobody wants to spend money on it, right? So how do you do this as cheaply as possible? So how do you understand the KPIs of the customer? which are typically how much data can I slam through a VM and get to my result so then all of my data scientists and software programmers can get to work. So that's the challenge you have with Resim. Is there some secret sauce that you'd like to share with us on how you do that cheaply? Or is that something that's kind of the value add that you provide? Well, it's not really a secret sauce as much as just being right. able to scale in mass parallel, like be able to fire up thousands and thousands of GPUs or tens of thousands of CPU cores and basically processing all of this in mass parallel. And that's actually the beauty of the cloud here because we can scale up these workloads and run all these jobs that take maybe a day, two days to run and then shut it down and then go on to the next part of the workflow. So it's kind of really understanding the job profile of, of how that job needs to run the most cost-performant way in order to bring down the whole cost. So not really a secret sauce, just a lot of tuning. I've got some questions about your simulation and maybe the uh -huh. different types that are out there and what you folks mm -hmm. focus on. But before we get there, a, a question of more of a curiosity, really, that I know our audience has brought up in the past. And it's and it's more of like where the state of the industry is, both in simulation as well as what's reality look like. Uh, you mentioned the chicken cross the road. Have we advanced enough where these cars understand the difference between a chicken, a bag that's full and a bag that's empty? Or are we still kind of getting there? That's kind of a tough question for me to answer because I'm kind of the infrastructure guy that helps the brilliant AI scientists who are trying to solve that problem. I'm, I'm basically just providing them compute so they can calculate all the possibilities. But I have ridden in these cars on multiple occasions over the past you know, four or five years. And I will say it's amazing how fast and how good some of these capabilities are getting. Yeah. Um, like I was riding with a probably shouldn't say, so I'll keep that anonymous, but I'm actually riding with one of our partners in one of their cars. And this driver was messing with us as we were driving. The autonomous vehicle was trying to switch lanes so we could do a left turn. And the guy kept boxing us in, but the car, it tried to actually change lanes four times, got boxed in, realized it's getting boxed in, and then basically did a right, circled back, and then went and then did left turn. So like, it's not the same AI probably you just mentioned like perception, like recognizing something in a bag or not in a bag, but basically just getting so smart knowing that like a human is messing with it, where it'll then problem solve for it and turn around. I mean, just that's something that you would not have seen a couple of years ago. It's a grand it, area. It's incredible. Let's pivot back to the simulations because mm -hmm. I'm still struck at how much the capabilities of the car and learning of the car is done through simulations. And of course, it's not just one simulation, it's many. So are there different types of simulations that Azure focuses on for the purposes of its customers that it's particularly good at and it likes to talk about? Once again, this comes back to cost performance, which is what where we focus, right? As I explained earlier, you, you have you know resim, which is basically say, okay, what what needs to get updated, and then all of you know the data scientists and software developers will go you know make those various patches and make those various improvements, and then before of course sending it back out to the test fleet, you want to test did you fix the problem, and that's where simulation comes in. Simulation can be kind of broken into two broad categories. Uh, one is perception simulation, the other is post perception simulation. Perception simulation is basically the simulation where you assess 
is the car seeing the world accurately, you know, hence perception. It's a simulation of the radar, the LIDAR, the camera, all those types of things. Uh, it tends to be, a, you know, a very compute intensive job, uh, often almost, you know, without exception, pretty much requiring GPUs. And we don't have our own simulator. We basically, all, very often the customer will usually have their own simulator, like very often startups have created their own simulator, whereas established OEMs or tier ones use third party products. So they will want to run these simulations at scale. You know, when you're running tens of thousands of simulations, it can get very expensive very fast. And before I come back to that, let me quickly describe the other type of simulation, which is post-perception, which is basically say the decision-making. I'm guessing they call it post-perception is probably because after the car sees something, then the decision after it sees it, does it make the right decision? Hence post-perception. Sure. But I've never really thought about it until just now, actually. <laughs> that's, probably, that's probably why they call it post-perception. Uh, but um, it's, you know, is the car making the right decision? Is it keeping distance from the car in front of it at the right distance? When it navigates a circle, is it keeping its lane correctly? All those types of things. What's really, really interesting, and opposed to like, say, traditional uh, HPC, high-performance computing, like, say, computational fluid dynamics or finite element analysis, where you, like, scale, like, a large job that might run hours, if not days, both of these types of simulation have, you know, a concept of functional coverage, which is you have a baseline, like, end cap scenario you want to hit, say, like, overtake, but then you have all the possible variations of it. There's probably 48 different versions of an overtake. I mean, are you going a single lane? Are you going around a truck? Are you going around a car? Is there a bend in the road? Is there a dip in the road? Is it in a tunnel? Uh, the positioning of the sun can mess with the sensors, right? Or is it raining? Is it snowing? Is it night? So basically what I'm saying is after you apply an update to say the perception stack for to do overtake successfully, you don't want to just do a simulation of like perfect conditions. You want to simulate the many, many, many thousand variants thereof. And so you're basically running a very small or short simulation that lasts a minute, two minutes, eight minutes maybe, but then many thousands of a highly similar one in parallel. It's a very different problem than like say traditional HPC supercomputing because you're basically drawing from like the same object store again and again and so it's, it's very much an, an IO uh, bound compute challenge. And also though, because the run times themselves are really, really short. Uh, how fast you can spin up these VMs and then shut them down drives a lot of the cost considerations. For example, if it takes you 20 minutes to spin up an eight-minute job, you're killing the cost performance because even while the VMs are being provisioned, you know, the billing meter is running. These are the kind of things that, you know, our customers, you know, benchmark us against. Can we beat, you know, our competitors or, or even on-premise solutions uh, when it comes to these types of requirements? Because, you know, when you run a job on thousands of GPUs, even five or 10% quickly turns into millions of dollars a month. Amazing. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. Well, let, let's change, let's change course. Um, there's a few terms and not quite crystal for me just yet. Um, and I think a good example of that is hardware in the loop integration. What is hardware in the loop integration and what role does it play in the development of the space and the vehicles? Hardware in the loop basically refers to the usage of very specialized testing equipment that is required for the, you know, the functional safety certification and validation, you know, when you put cars on the road. Think of it as specialized testing systems that are a certified uh, recreation of the software systems in a car. The regulatory requirements absolutely require you to run your tests on the specialized equipment. That will never change. That will always be with us. 
no matter how good we get at running these jobs in the cloud, you will always have to run tests on this equipment. Now this equipment, we can't put it in our cloud. So we have to have basically hybrid orchestration, uh, which is probably what I think you're referring to with integration here between our cloud instances and this testing equipment, either on-premise or uh, hosted by a partner of ours. So conceptually, it's very similar to what you see with crash testing uh, in you know, the traditional automotive world, where everyone, if they wanna get that four-star crash test safety rating, basically has to do a front, side, rear roll test, and they have to actually smash a $600,000 prototype into a wall and have you know that those dummies fly everywhere like Oscar, I think they call it. But because that is so expensive, you basically want to do your crash test simulation, thousands of iterations through it, and then do that ideally only once and just get your four-star crash test safety rating and go sell your car. It's conceptually, it's the same thing with what we're trying to do. We want to iterate many, many, many thousands of times across all the different variants of the real world scenarios that those software and AI updates apply to. So then, you download a much smaller data set, okay, to these hill rigs uh, uh, and run the tests that are, are mandated uh, by regulatory, you know, oversight uh, before then sending it out to car, the target vehicle. Basically what a, a hybrid hill uh, orchestration looks like. Got it. Oh, that's helpful um, and interesting. And I, I do have, a, a, you know, there's a lot to talk about there, but maybe save it for uh, your... I should probably yeah. explain why, why we do it, though. Why you do it and maybe back up a little bit and you know why, and maybe it's the easy answer is regulatory concerns, but uh -huh. you said you couldn't put this stuff in the cloud. It would break all of our certs because basically people require access to this testing equipment. You know, over the life of the development of the vehicle, you have to go in, you have to change the card, you have to do other types of things because it is a certified version of what's actually on the road. So we can't just let you know customers stroll into our data center, swap cards out, you know, do that kind of thing. It would, it would just be very, suffice to say, problematic. So they have to use this testing equipment. But then if you go 100% all this testing equipment, I mean, this, this testing equipment is super expensive. It's difficult to maintain. So you can't run all of your jobs through there. So it's basically, how do you do like thousands of iterations on very agile VMs, but still then have that final test that you have to run and then that a hill rig can run super accurately, like completely accurately, and just give the confidence of the engineers then that, okay, yeah, we can now put this on the road. So that's the problem we're trying to solve, a logistical one. Well, I'm hearing you you know, talk about all the work that Azure and your team is doing, and well, all roads lead to data. The amount mm -hmm. is massive. Mm -hmm. Our listeners are very familiar with hearing that and understanding that a significant amount of data is coming out of these cars for every every second they drive. And of course, the simulations uh, that help them get there is no different. But can you give us a sense of scale of that data and how you folks manage the processing of all that volume? I don't think we really have seen behind that curtain before. It's a problem that continues to get more and more difficult, actually. Uh, when I first started you know, really getting into this four, maybe even five years ago, pretty much a large volume of data you know, per vehicle per day from a test fleet was about seven terabytes. Then oh. within about a year, year and a half, it jumped a little over 30. I rarely hear anyone below 70 terabytes per vehicle per day uh, for like, like an eight hour shift. I've now heard 120 as well. Uh, what's driving this is you go to higher levels of autonomy, the number of sensors on the car, especially cameras increases, you know, and then also these cameras, you know, the resolution and you're getting, you know, like super high definition cameras on these cars these days, that's, right. that turns into a lot of data. So if you have a decent sized test fleet, 
like in a single location, you quickly get to a petabyte of data per day that you know needs to be ingested somehow into the cloud. And if you have multiple test fleets around the world, data continues, volume continues to explode. So we have you know developed multiple ways of you know getting data out of these test fleets and into the cloud. One is you know an obvious one. We can just string a super high we call it Azure Express route, a dedicated line into the garage that can then upload the data from the garage into the cloud. We also have an edge devices team that you know has you know compute we can actually put in the garage that facilitates the upload and the data transfer uh, into the network then up to the cloud. And like I said, so we can you know string this dedicated line to pretty much no matter where the garage is, uh, pretty much anywhere in the world because you know we have like you know like seventy regions now globally, uh, but. One other problem, though, is, is a lot of these fleets, though, they're nomadic. They change locations right. every day. So you can't build out a dedicated line to each hotel where the drivers stay every night. Right. So we actually create, you know, something we call Azure Data Box Desk, which is a managed service where we hire a courier who can meet the drivers at the hotel, give them the next day's disks, pick up the ones that uh, they used uh, that day, and then sends to the data center. Uh, and then once it arrives at the data center, we upload it to that customer's account. Then they get an email notification noting that, that their data is now ready for them to work on. So it's been an interesting journey to say. I mean, I did not think going into it, we'd have to figure out how to support mobile fleets, but now we do. Uh, well, the, the combination of old tech with new to kind of get that information yeah. routed to where it needs to go is, <laughs> is yeah. pretty funny to talk about. And when you say disks, I mean, are we actually talking... Disks? Are we talking jump drives? What, what are we? Uh, basically, relatively large SSDs. Wow. Okay. What's critical, though, is these SSDs, of course, for obvious reasons, they need to be encrypted, right? Right. So this is where also it helps that we have these you know, regions all around the world. When you ship these disks, you do not want them to cross borders because it might get stuck in customs because right. you know, basically 128-bit encryption is military grade. So you don't want to be stuck in customers for three months. So like, for example, if you have a test fleet in Singapore, you have a data center in Singapore. For obvious reasons, the cost of shipping, and the time to ship, like say if it's from Singapore to Singapore, is you know a lot shorter than and faster than a cross border. So the fact that we have you know, this service available globally in places like you would never think we do, like say, for example, South Africa, is one of the, uh, I think, the values of this program. Very impressive. Very impressive. Well, I appreciate a lot of your time and insight into in Azure and the space and how you're helping develop it. Any additional points uh, that you'd like to share uh, with our audience? Um, I know you mentioned the rise of the synthetics, some issues surrounding about that. Do you have just one more moment to talk about those and any other additional points you'd like to share? One thing we've learned is, you know, every six months we have to do a kind of a complete rethink as either the KPIs or the requirements of our customers change. And I'd say there's really going forward, there's going to be four things that we think will impact and we don't fully realize how impactful they'll be and exactly what we'll need to do. We just need, we'll need to do something. And one is the rise of synthetics. What we mean by that is instead of real world test drive data, you have to introduce generated data. Generated data can sometimes be too perfect. It can lead to, you know, bias in the AI which could lead to an incorrect decision by the autonomy stack. So, you know, how do we infuse synthetics and how do we manage that, the data lineage, some of the challenges that you're going to have uh, with this type of data-driven workload is, is something that we're going to be spending a lot of time thinking about. 
Another one is sensor fidelity. We have 8K cameras these days. The sensor fidelity is going to continue to, you know, improve, which means the data explosion will continue as well. So, you know, at some point we have to figure out ways to get better at do like intelligent filtering or something to like just reduce the data volume and the costs. And then, of course, a huge unknown to us is, you know, regulatory regimes and what direction that's going in. At some point in time, they're going to come in. There's going to be new regulations that everyone's going to have to deal with. You know, uh, a few years ago, like in Europe, you know, GDPR came in. So we had to figure out a way to obscure either uh, license plates or faces uh, in the data collected using AI algorithms. And then, of course, ultimately what everyone wants is what I would call complete, like, cycle accurate, true digital twin validation of the real world on the cloud. We're not there yet. No one's there yet, actually. And I don't know if we'll ever get there, but how do we truly create a true digital twin for the purposes of validation on the cloud so that our customers and partners can have confidence in knowing what they built on Azure will truly lead to a safer world. Truly impressive. And as you're talking about this, all the risks that continue to be out there, all the revolutionary and evolutionary change that will be affecting the space provides both opportunities for complete chaos as well as opportunity, uh, depending on which side of the coin you're on there. And I appreciate you walking us through that. Kurt, this has been a great pleasure uh, to have you on the program. I really appreciate you walking through all this. I do hope we can darken your door maybe in a year's time to see how things have progressed um, in this space. You wouldn't mind, but uh, we really appreciate it. And we look forward to catching up with you again soon. Sure, happy to join in. You're right, I'll probably have a very different opinion at that time as well. <laughs> <laughs> I hope for it, I hope for it. Mm -hmm.